Involvement with the criminal justice system is life-changing. It matters. Having a justice system that works is a really important part of a democratic society. I'm Penelope Gibbs, Director of Transform Justice. I'm Rob Allen. I've worked in and around criminal justice all my career. This is the Transform Justice podcast. Throwing light on the criminal justice system. Hearing from people who know. It's about whether the system's fair. And what can be done to make it better. Today we're going to discuss a crime which few people know is a crime until they're actually prosecuted for it. Parents criminalised for their children's truancy. I'm joined by my co-presenter Rob Allen and by two experts in this area of the law. Civil solicitor Polly Sweeney and Ellie Costello, who runs the campaign group Square Peg. Rob, is this an issue, this, this one of parents being prosecuted for their children not going to school? Is that one you've come across before? Well, Penelope, I remember running a project about 20-plus years ago about the unnecessary use of prison and being really shocked to find that some mothers, a small number, but mothers of small children were being sent to prison for failing to send their children to school. And I, you know, I was really shocked and puzzled by it because it seemed such an inappropriate way of using the criminal justice system and certainly imprisonment. Yeah, I mean, indeed, imprisonment is is gobsmacking for this crime. Ellie, um, most parents don't get into trouble with their local education authority, but you did. How did you get into trouble? So my child was chronically unwell for a long time and um, attendance became suddenly an issue. So the amount of time that we were having off became a concern. And I say having off, you know, it sounds like you're sort of living the life of Riley, but you're not. You're caring for a sick child. Um, We had a real sort of uptick in our school, both in terms of national agenda, and we had a change of head. Um, And so the change of head brought a change in culture. And one of those changes in culture was a real focus on attendance. So once we sort of dipped below sort of 60% attendance, that's when um, various forces, I suppose, that I'd never heard of in terms of attendance enforcement, attendance uh, welfare, attendance management, these were the sort of conversations that started. we started to have. And that's when the letter started um, informing us that we were failing in our parental duty, statutory duty. So, you know, it was really quite uh, confusing because we were fully working with the school and informing them of every absence. We were supplying medical information. We were doing everything that we could to comply. Did the local authority actually end up prosecuting you or, or not? No, it was all it was all threats for us. And, and let me be clear, the threats were more than enough. Um, they were devastating because the, the letters become more frequent. Um, the language in them shifts a little bit <laughs> and becomes, you know, this is now the third time we have written to you. So everything starts upping the ante. And as a law-abiding citizen, to know that you are facing a fine and or prosecution and or imprisonment, at a time when I was trying to care for my very unwell child um, was extremely destabilizing. And and so it became this ludicrous sort of situation of sort of begging an ill child to attend for an hour in order to hit a registration mark on 
on the register. And what should have happened is we should have been referred to medical needs tuition. Um, there are pathways, established pathways that we should have gone down. But what actually happened was it then became an accusation of fabricating illness. And it was almost like, in fact, because my son ended up with several rare diagnoses, I found this with health as well, that when the system stops having an answer, the, the professional then comes back with, well, mum's making it up. But the drivers actually are a lack of services that are able to respond early, um, consistently, proactively, supportively. And so what happens is, is that the issues for that family become more severe. But it starts with an innocuous letter informing you that you're failing in your duty to ensure your child attends to school. Polly, um, the media often runs stories about parents who are fined um, for, say, taking their children on a package holiday to Mallorca in term time. But Ellie's story and the story of um, other parents she knows are very different. Is taking children out for holidays the major reason for school absenteeism? It's certainly the reason that gets the most publicity. But in my experience, this issue affects a much larger group of children who often have undiagnosed special educational needs. And so the cases that I see and the clients that I see are not the families who have taken their child abroad during term time, but they are the children who have been waiting for two years for an autism assessment or the children who aren't able to access community mental health services and they have difficulties with their attendance directly as a result of their disabilities and their their special educational needs. But the, the holiday scenario is also memorable as well because there was um, a Supreme Court case, wasn't there, about um, a family who um, disputed the their local authority who'd find them for taking their children out what what was the result of that case ultimately the supreme court confirmed that regular attendance effectively means attending pretty much every day um, and so even a child who has a very good attendance rate generally um could be liable family could be liable for a fine if they take them out for just a week of the year so I think it shows that the courts are taking a very strict approach to when they are going to be prosecuting parents in these circumstances. I think to add to that as well, the John Platt case was a sort of a parent attempting to take an ethical standpoint about the decision of what is in the best interest of their family. And there was evidence that he presented that showed that um, a one-week term time holiday made no impact on attainment. On how well they did in, you know, tests and exams and so on. Yeah. What does impact children's attainment is a lack of special educational needs support, is um, top-down uh, high-stakes testing, uh, continuous assessment. And of course, what's happened is as well since 2010 is that the percentages around what is classed as persistent absenteeism 
or severe absenteeism have got more and more narrow. So when I was at school, you know, <laughs> mum used to send me in with a note or, or, you know, to explain why I'd been off of the previous week. You know, there was there was no... Um, there were no phone calls. No, no phone calls. And we've got families now that are experiencing verging on harassment, five or six phone calls a day, um, doorstepping and all, all the rest of it. Well, so when they've already phoned once yeah. to say, my child's ill or whatever, they're getting phoned five or six times the same day. Yes, yes. And I think this is really key because uh, the messaging centrally is to scrutinise and be rigorous around attendance. So it's easier for more families to be classed as persistently absent now and many fall into it without knowing. So we're, we're encountering huge numbers of families who are receiving these automated letters that are, you know, threatening really, and coercive, and, and they're really destabilising as well. Polly, um, parents are legally obliged to to get their children to school, but are, are there any kind of valid reasons that they can not send their children to school? What, what's the legal position? It's important to start right at the beginning of this process, which is the head teacher's decision on whether or not to authorise an absence, because if the absence is authorised, then we don't go any further it's only when the absence is unauthorised, which is when you move into a territory of looking at fines and prosecutions. And so the head teacher getting that decision right is really important. And what we see is huge disparities in the approaches of individual schools in whether they authorise those absences. So there is, I think, very good national guidance from the Department of Education, which says that if a child is ill, then the starting point is that the school should accept the parent's position on that and shouldn't routinely be asking for further evidence. Yet what we see in practice is schools routinely insisting on medical evidence from a GP, even if the child has got a cold or an upset stomach, before they will mark that absence as authorised. So Children and parents and families can very quickly fall into a position where they have a number of unauthorised absences, even though applying the Department of Education's guidance, the head teachers should have marked those absences as authorised. So the head teacher is very important in this, but at some point they will get the, lo the wider local authority involved. Is there a kind of clear threshold at which... A head teacher said, look, the number of unauthorised absences has reached a certain threshold, therefore we need to consider some action. Is that how it works? Or does the head themselves take action to try and resolve the problem? So every individual local authority, and this is part of the problem, has their own policy which sets out the point at which a school needs to be referring cases to them. And, and so there is huge differences nationally on when head teachers will report this to a local authority and the factors that they need to take into account before doing so. And some schools have a very strict approach, um, which requires, as Ellie was saying, a very high level of attendance. Um, and if it drops below that, they will immediately pass details on to local authorities. 98% attendance is considered average now. And we've got messages coming through from Ofsted and the Children's Commissioner who are calling for 100% attendance as a baseline. 
which is preposterous. No workplace makes a demand of 100% attendance. There is pragmatic permission within every employment contract to have five or 10 days ill health absence a year. Yeah, and some people are given duvet days, aren't Absolutely. they? Absolutely, and that's becoming more of the norm, actually, is, that is a recognition to empower employees to do that. At the moment, we are pushing towards presenteeism at all costs for our children. Can I say, presumably, this, these kind of letters, these prosecutions, these fines, don't occur within the private sector, or do they? To the best of our knowledge, we do not see attendance of enforcement within the independent sector at all. So there's massive unfairness there, that if somebody's children goes to a private school and they're absent, and in fact, I know parents whose children were very, very absent from private schools, they don't have the same system and it's not the same kind of punitive approach. No, and there's a real sort of flag there, isn't there, around the pastoral approach being more common within the independent sector, but also something about um, actually the, the autonomy of parents as as, pay, as paying for education, that their opinion as to the fitness of their child's attendance is much more accepted. But, but you, you have never heard, either of you, of a parent who sends their children to a private school getting a fixed term penalty or a prosecution for absenteeism and Polly so the national uh, guidance applies to all schools but there are some small differences so fixed penalty notice can't be issued by independent schools for example but I think also it does come back to this all starts with the individual decision of the head teacher in the first place as to whether to authorize an absence or not and in that respect I think Ellie is right in saying that there are cultural differences in approach um, between different types of schools. Isn't one option, if if parents are being hassled by a local authority because their kids aren't attending school, for them to to say, okay, we're not going to go to this school anymore, to, to or to say we're going to homeschool them, or to take some sort of option that in a way gets gets rid of the problem? Is that is that true? I mean, absolutely. All parents have a right to electively home educate their child and they can make that decision and they can they can have their child removed from the role of the school. I don't know, though, if I agree with you that it gets rid of the problem. I think what happens in these cases is that parents often will electively home educate because they feel enormous pressure. So the election is is fictional because election implies choice, but they do. They, exactly. Yeah. And what happens is that when a parent elects to home educate, using that word very loosely, uh, they're taking on all of the responsibility then. So then they become legally responsible for ensuring their child is receiving a suitable full-time education. Um, and so it is just moving the responsibility and the problem from what should have been the school and the local authority onto the parents. I say that, but undoubtedly for some children being educated outside of the, the, the formal school environment is the right decision. Many of my clients thrive being educated at home and they thrive being educated in different types of settings. But once you've electively home educated there are much less and much weaker duties on local authorities to provide and help with education in those circumstances. So Ellie, um, your son was very ill and wasn't going to school. Was he anti-school? 
No. So what's been so very sad is you ha- you watch helplessly as your curious, engaged child disappears. Um, they withdraw into themselves. So once we stabilised his health, um, what was left was the mental health challenges, which were, I no longer feel I can trust these adults, this school, this system, to actually believe me. So we are driving children and families away because we are not believing them and working with them from the outset. So, Polly, if parents can't persuade the local authority that their children have a valid reason, they end up being treated as criminals. They might have to pay a fixed penalty. They might be prosecuted. What do you think the point of of criminalising the parents actually is? I think that's a very good question, Rob. The Department of Education guidance makes clear that this should be absolutely a last resort when all other interventions, including other legal interventions, have failed. And one of the factors to consider is when it's demonstrated that a prosecution is likely to change parents' behaviour. But I really question whether when the issues in many, many cases that I see have nothing to do with parents' behaviour, but about the child's individual needs, how prosecution is ever going to make a difference other than causing more harm to that child by forcing them or their parents feeling that they have to be forced to send them into school inappropriately when they're actually unwell or have undiagnosed needs. Well, Ellie, what do you think they think the point of criminalising the parents is? Yeah, Polly's absolutely right. It's nudge theory on steroids, really. There is an inherent core belief that parents do not value education and, and therefore, because they don't value it, they're not trying hard enough. And so in order to make them try hard enough, you send them a letter reminding them of their duty and threatening them with a fine in order them, for them to, to sort of buck up and change, change their ways. But it, it absolutely doesn't, doesn't work. And I have questioned the department on this. And I said, what evidence do you have that this does change outcomes, improve things? I, ha- I was given one single example but but one example isn't an evidence base. No. You know, they need proper uh, data on the, the whole behaviour changing for, for thousands of people if, if, if it was going to work. We are seeing outcomes. They're just not the outcomes that we want. We are seeing fixed-term exclusions going up. We are seeing more children becoming persistently absent. We are seeing more children end up at within um, child and adolescent mental health services. Mm. Just to come back to the the prosecution's point, I know it's not, it's a relatively small number, but still sizable. I I gather when parents are prosecuted, they mostly end up in front of this so-called single justice procedure, and a lot of them don't respond to the prosecution notice, which means that they're kind of deemed to be guilty, really, and all sorts of things flow from that. Why do you think, Polly, that might be that people don't respond to those notices? And Rob, I would say, first of all, it's a real concern that these cases are dealt with under the single justice procedure. My feeling is that many parents will not know that they potentially have a a statutory defense to the prosecution. 
and and so they won't know because they don't know where to access uh, advice and support on these things that they have a perfectly reasonable case to to be able to uh, defend the prosecution so you think the single justice procedure is fundamentally not a suitable format to, to deal with these kinds of cases in absolutely not no ellie i mean how how do the kind of parents who are part of your group cope with the the actual prosecution with the legal system so many of them don't know that they are being fined so we had a a parent just yesterday sharing a letter that um it had already gone through sjp and they'd been found guilty and they had to pay 895 pounds worth of costs and this parent had been in and out of hospital on chemotherapy and this is a child with special educational needs who's on a waiting list for support. So there, there, there's a huge problem within the administration of, of the process itself that parents aren't receiving correspondence, even notifying them of the opportunity to take part in their defence. And even when they do, most of them are just like, well, who's going to believe me? And so a lot of the work that we're doing is we're trying to say, no, 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 you absolutely do have a right to defend yourself. Please create a timeline, read out a statement, um, get a, a professional to write a character um, a report on you and your family, anything, at least participate. Um, if I think back to trying to participate in my own defense at that point... Honestly, you mean a legal defence? Yes, you you would you wouldn't. I wouldn't have been have in a position well. to, to to do it. And so then, of course, and and also, we mustn't forget that it's mostly mothers that are named and charged. And so then there is the fear of if I turn up and break down in court, what are they going to think about me? We've got schools saying that I'm an unfit mother. So what is that? What is going to happen here? It's interesting. We. We did a podcast earlier on about the single justice procedure, and this is ringing a lot of bells. A lot of women summonsed, lots of very rough justice, if justice at all. So I, I, I'm I'm not surprised, but I'm disturbed by what you have to say. I mean, Ellie, in terms of the numbers of prosecutions, they sort of peaked, I think, in in 2019 before COVID. What do you make of the trends? Do you think they'll keep coming down? The cynic in me thinks it's a cash cow. I mean, the, 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 the Department for Education has graciously informed local authorities that they can use revenues to fund their education welfare enforcement services. So fines that people might pay normally would go to the Treasury generally in government, but you're saying they can actually go directly to the local authority to pay for some of their services. Yeah, so the parents that are struggling are going to be paying for the services that then enforce non-attendance. So having come down, so in, in 2019 there were 36,000 prosecutions and then it came down for two years. You think it's going to start building back up again? Yes, because the only reason why it came down is because they put a pause on them during COVID while schools were locked down. But interestingly, what we saw in um, October 2020, when schools were sort of partially reopening, as schools reopened, we saw a return to short shrift zero tolerance attendance, you know, children must return. And obviously, this was the government's attempt to get families and get people back into the workplace. 
But the solution is, rather than understand that we have families with high amounts of clinical extreme vulnerability who are bereaved um, who were you know we who weren't fully vaccinated who had all sorts of issues going on for them rather than give anyone the time and the resource to to deal with that it was just back to school missed learning everybody must be back and so we've seen a massive uptake So, Polly, I know that you and Ellie have looked at trying to do a judicial review to kind of challenge the whole system of punishing parents for their children not going to school. Did you do that judicial review? And if you didn't, why not? So we engaged in what's called pre-action correspondence with the Department of Education, where we put our concerns to them and invited them to respond And the response that we got from the Department of Education was really to emphasize, in a way, they agreed with us. And that actually, in their view, their guidance already did everything that we were saying ought to happen. And the issue really is compliance by individual local authorities and individual schools. And and that is obviously requires individual challenges by a single parent standing up and challenging an individual school about a decision. And, you know, these parents are already in an incredibly difficult position. The idea that they might take on a legal challenge against a decision not to authorise, um, I can see why many parents would would not have the appetite or the capacity or, you know, the, the energy to be able to take that on. So was your conclusion that the guidance, the national guidance that's there at the moment is actually okay and is quite humane and does does kind of um, make prosecution a very, very last resort? The Department of Education are clear that attendance is a priority for them. But if you really sit down and look at the guidance, a large part of that is focusing on early intervention, support for parents, support for children, what steps can be taken before a fine, uh, when fines are issued, the factors that local authorities ought to be taking into account. So in my view, it's all there. It just needs to be followed. But you didn't pick up any sense that they're uncomfortable with the idea of the criminal law playing a role in this at all. I mean, they, they, they see a role ultimately uh, for fines, sanctions, prosecution. My reading of the guidance is that they see it as part of the tools that are available to tackle attendance. And that although it is a last resort, they see it as a way of demonstrating the importance of the issue, the severity of the issues, and that that through a prosecution, a parent might realise this is very serious, as if a parent wasn't already aware of that fact when they're struggling every day to get their child into school. There is a section on working with parents, and Polly's absolutely right, it does talk about support, support, support. But there is also an enormous element of that guidance, which is about informing schools to ensure that they are creating a case should it end up in court. For example, at the start of every school admissions process, um, every single family in the school is asked to sign a parenting contract and a student contract. Part of it says I will wear my uniform, I will ensure I get to school on time, I will ensure I attend. It's a non-binding agreement. 
schools will tell parents you don't have to sign it. But in the guidance it states that where a parent does not sign that school home agreement, that is the first piece of evidence that a school must now start tracking which parents don't sign that voluntary contract. And so we are encouraging the practice of building cases against children and families. So would you take absenteeism out of the criminal law altogether? Yes. You would make it not a possibility to use the criminal law against parents in this circumstance? Yes. And here's why. The solution to truancy and persistent absence is not to beat the family or the child or shame the child. If we really want to break intergenerational disengagement from services and education, and we want to create a new generation of children that grow up to know and experience that services and education is a safe, welcoming, supportive place to be, we're not going to do it by threatening their parents with final prosecution. Well, that's a... That, that, that's a good note to, to, to come to a close on in a way. But before we do that, can I ask each of you, perhaps Polly first, what one thing should the state do to try and support children to attend school? My one thing would be for the Department of Education to improve accountability of the existing legal system that's in place to support children and young people. We don't need new laws. We need the existing laws to be complied with. Okay, and, and what about you, Ellie? Just one one thing, if you could choose one. Mine would be to ditch truancy laws. I think we can do better. I think the criminal justice system is not the place to try to alter parental behaviour or to address poverty. It's a big problem, but we can do better than Dickensian truancy laws. So get rid of those, please. Rob, what about you? Are these Dickensian truancy laws? You know, I think they really are. I, I'm, I'm with Ellie on, on that. I think we need to, to take this away from the criminal law. If we need some sort of court action, which from time to time might be necessary, the civil law would be better, not necessarily the existing arrangements. There needs to be some reform there too, but certainly not crime, criminal law, punishment. I think that's totally wrong. Well, a consensus there. Thanks, Rob, Polly and Ellie. And for details of how to join SquarePeg and about the SJP, do look at our programme notes. And if you like the podcast, do please rate us on your podcast platform and spread the word. Thanks for listening. Bye. Bye Bye-bye. Goodbye. Bye.